Love a good fright? Stream your fears with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and acclaimed exclusives like Creepshow and Slasher, Flesh and Blood, experience what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series covers the horror spectrum, meaning there's something for every type of horror, thriller, and supernatural fan. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder, so good, it's scary. There's a reason podcasts are popping up everywhere. Podcasts can make you money. And Spreaker is the easiest way to start a podcast. You could literally record your first episode today. Spreaker has all the tools you need to record, edit, publish, and yeah, monetize your podcast all in one place. And it's free. So tell your story and make money while doing it. Start your podcast for free now at Spreaker.com slash make money. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash make money from the iHeart Podcast Network. There's a reason podcasts are popping up everywhere. Podcasts can make you money. And Spreaker is the easiest way to start a podcast. You could literally record your first episode today. Spreaker has all the tools you need to record, edit, publish, and yeah, monetize your podcast all in one place. And it's free. So tell your story and make money while doing it. Start your podcast for free now at Spreaker.com slash make money. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash make money from the iHeart Podcast Network. Hey, man, what's up? Hey, how's it going? It's going okay. <laughs> um, a guy just called me and said we're in a fight against God and Satan and demonic entities, and it was just insane. Insane. After a long week of writing and investigation, I'm very ready to get home. And as per usual in the Ozarks, I have no cell reception. But this time, when I get back into range, my phone has 100 missed calls and text messages. One of them is Chris's sister. So here's what happened. I hear that Chris has been arrested. It turns out that he was arrested for making terroristic threats and for burglary, that's what I hear. Even though I don't think Chris had anything to do with the murder of Rebecca, he is not doing himself any favors by visiting her ex-boyfriend's house. Chris's kids are getting texts, according to the sister, saying that, you know, your dad's a killer and it's just, it's just awful. This is an awful situation. In September of 2004, 22-year-old Rebecca Gould was brutally murdered in a remote area of the Arkansas Ozarks. 14 years later, her killer is still out there. I've come back to Mountain View with one mission, to get justice for Rebecca. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. The story we heard from the police is that Chris went over to Justin's house and he told him if he talks, he'll kill him. That's not what happened. Chris and his friend happened to be over at Justin's house because the friend was had a friendship with Justin's wife or whatever, and they were over there to see her. And, you know, then Justin came home, and I'm sure because of the connection, I'm sure there were words exchanged about the case because they haven't seen each other in a long time. But that wasn't the cause of him going over there at all. Tommy went over there, not Chris. 
We don't know what went down behind closed doors. It all sounds very fishy that, that Chris is the only one with charges against him and he gets charged with burglary. Not because he took anything, but because if you're at someone's house without permission, you can get charged with burglary. I think it's very fishy also that a headline came out in the paper saying suspect in 2004 murder as if, you know, it, it just looks like they're trying to throw it on Chris once again. It feels like that. It really does. Chris looks extremely guilty right now. Is there a world where Chris did do it? No. Okay. No. I mean... I just needed to hear you say it. And he doesn't help himself. Wait, so when did this actually happen? I don't know. The article got posted yesterday, but, but from what I from what I hear, it was a few days ago. I'm trying to... I'm getting the affidavit now and figuring out when it happened and getting all the details. Where... I mean, where is the case right now besides, besides this whole Christmas? That's it. <laughs> Dennis told Chris's sister that all the evidence in the case points to Chris and that he wants to get this case solved before he's retired. Um, and he said, all the evidence points to Chris, your family's trash, um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's what's going on. your family is trash? He said that to her. I believe her. Oh, Lord. So. No, yeah, I do too. That's what's going on. Okay. But they don't blame us. The good, the good news from that is even Chris and his sister don't blame. They, they know, like, they're calling us and trying to help. So okay. get this right. The sister's trying to bail him out, and she's like, Chris keeps saying, and this is so Chris, my word is my bond. I don't need a lawyer. I've got my word. And I'm like, you know, you might really want to get him a lawyer. And she said, I'm trying to get him a lawyer. We don't have any money. Chris is, this is like the fifth job Chris has lost because these guys keep arresting him, you know. She said, um, now, he's not blameless in this. Chris does some really dumb stuff. You know, he's getting himself in trouble. Now that Chris is in jail, it is even more vital that we find Rebecca's killer. I reached out to Casey at the beginning of my investigation, and he hasn't gotten back to me yet, even though he's the one person who's been officially ruled out as a suspect by the police. Now I want to find out if his alibi is as airtight as they claim it is. I still have hope. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, and and maybe and look, if he if he doesn't if he doesn't get back to us ever, maybe it will come to knocking on his door. But like, I still have some hope that he might get in touch with us. Everyone said how much he loved her and what a good guy he was. Um, there was that topics. Did you see that topics board about him? And it says, so I met this guy named Casey something, and he uh, used to sing in a band. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Yeah, and then, that. and then everybody says, "Well, this one says fairly decent guy. I think he works at Melbourne Sonic. He's really sweet. He's been done wrong by the past. Yeah, it's definitely haunted him. Yeah. It's definitely it seems to have really haunted him, and now he seems to be happy and, and settled and everything. But it's really it's also really crazy because you think about it and you're like, she should have all those things. She should have a husband and a baby and." You know, she should have the opportunity to be an aunt to her sister's kids and, you know, all those things. And, like, she doesn't have any of those things now. But then eventually it's going to be like, look, dude, like, you say you love this girl, you know? She was so important to you. And, like, she got murdered brutally. You know something. And if he has nothing to hide, he should be willing to talk about it. Because that was his friend and he loved her and, you know, and he should want to find who did this. Not only that, but... I mean, his house was destroyed. I'd be pissed if somebody murdered somebody in my house. So we go back to the timeline and what we know of September 20th, 2004. Casey told police that after Rebecca dropped him off at work in the morning, he was at work all day until his shift ended. 
Then he went to the movies and stayed out with his friends that whole night. But some people in town have heard a different story. Remember Alicia? She was the plumber's daughter. Her husband was the one who owned the Sonic, where both Casey and Rebecca worked. She was staying like at his place, I think, when she would come up from school. Um, but not, you know, she wasn't, it, it wasn't a full-time thing uh, that she was there all the time. But, I mean, they were together quite a bit. They always worked together. I know on that particular day, it was, um, it was weird. They said she had brought him to work and dropped him off that day. I don't know why. Um, I think maybe because she was up from school that she wasn't working. I'm not sure. She wasn't off on break or something. Um, but she had dropped him off at Sonic that morning. That was the last time that he saw her. As a matter of fact, they said uh, that he had went, that he left work, and I guess Rebecca wasn't supposed to be there. She was supposed to be leaving to go back to Fayetteville. And so he left work with a friend, and they actually went out to the movies and did you know, hung out that night, and he said he didn't return home, you know, till really late um, and into the next morning, I think. Um, they said he was there for the whole entire shift that day and that he left work with that friend of his um, and that they were supposed to go out to a movie or, you know. What she's saying matches the story that was reported in the papers and what I've heard from others. Casey was at work all day and out with his friends all night. He was really shook up, he seemed like it, after, you know, they found Rebecca. But what I found odd was, um, you know, he said that he went back to the house and that he couldn't tell anything had happened there, but that her stuff was still there and her belongings. And I just think that's not accurate because, you know, they said that you could physically tell that something happened. How could you go into your own home and not notice that something happened there? Or to try to say that you don't notice that something happened? I just I don't understand that. Do you think that your ex-husband could help us with the records of who was working at Sonic that day? Yeah, probably. All right, so Alicia unloads some new information I haven't heard before. She said that Casey may have stopped at home at some point before he went there with the police on Tuesday. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Joey. Is not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or... Alicia's husband, Joey, isn't calling us back. Sometimes, people don't want to get involved because they're hiding something. Other times, especially in this case, it can be because they are scared. George has proven to be a valuable member of our team. He's the only one who was there at the time reporting on the murder and is emotionally and physically removed enough to give me some real answers. What, what do you think about Casey now? I don't know. He talked to me several times initially after her body was found. And, um, and then I contacted his wife, his now wife, um, probably in 2016, I called her at work, and she's like, oh, because I wanted to talk to him, you know, because I wanted to kind of update the case, and I wanted to get it, dive into some more details, because like you said, it's been, you know, at that time, it had been 12 years. I mean, you're getting to the point where it doesn't matter if you're still interviewing people, this is a cold case, and you, ne and you never know 
when one little thing will break in a case. One story runs, one rumor starts, and then all of a sudden everything changes. So I just wanted to talk to him. And so I called her and she was really nice, very nice, very friendly. Um, gave me um, her phone number and his phone number. Um, and I tried to contact him and he would not talk to me. Well, then I tried to contact her and she wouldn't contact me back. And, and she had told me, she goes, oh, he'd love to talk to you. But then, so then I finally contacted her at work again. And I said, hey, I've been trying to get a hold of you and Casey and I haven't been able to get a hold of you guys. She goes, oh, well, he doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't think it'll do him any good to talk to you. And I said, well, that may be true. I mean, I'm, I'm just a journalist. But I would like to talk to him. You know, um, the story is, you know, she went and dropped him off at work, and then she went to the the Possum Trot convenience store, got a couple things, and then left, went back to his house, and then somewhere, sometime during that morning, she died. Well, then he got off work, and then he went to a stayed at night at a friend's house, and then went straight to work the next day. So he never returned to his house to see the folded clothes and all this other stuff. Well, then I heard a separate story that he did go home the next morning to get some fresh clothes for work. And so I just, you know, that's a that's a kind of a big detail. It's a big detail. Um, so I just wanted to know, and uh, you know, he obviously didn't want to talk about it. And to this day, I have not spoke to him about it. I've tried to, uh, but he just doesn't want to talk. Turns out he's heard the same thing we heard, that at some point before the police arrived on Tuesday, Casey went home to change shirts. Even if her car was just still there, he still wouldn't have left, you know, to go to a friend's right. house. Do you know what I mean? It never made sense to me that he... And her purse was there. Yeah. Ev everything was there. I mean, even if you wanted to assume, let's say she, her car was there. Let's say he comes home the next morning, sees her car there. Exactly. Maybe another friend came and picked her up, went and stayed the night, you know, with another friend. Something happened. You know, she was supposed to pick her sister up. Maybe the arrangement changed. She wouldn't have left her purse. In, in his defense, um, to this degree, we don't know for certain that he returned to the house. That it's it's just again a rumor. When you talk to Casey, what did he seem like? When he did he seem really emotional, upset? Um, he seemed really distant. Like it, you could tell that there was a shock factor with him. And I was actually at the sheriff's department when they brought him in for questioning one time, and the family was there. And I mean. There was fire in a lot of those people's eyes. And actually, one of Rebecca's ex-boyfriends, Justin, he was there, and he started, like, just tears started coming down his face, and he, he was really angry, it looked like, just watching the police lead him into the sheriff's department. Considering that we now know Rebecca and Justin saw each other just a week before her death, I can't imagine the tension inside that police station. So when I talked to him, he seemed shocked. I talked to him maybe twice after that. Um, and he just, uh, very quiet, very soft-spoken. Um, you know, he, you know, I, I suspect he probably knows some things, but, you know, I can't, he won't talk to me, so I can't prove it, so. He might be scared. He may be scared. That's, that's a very viable possibility. Being like a cub reporter at the time, I made some mistakes because he did talk to me after the fact. And I could have found these details out immediately. All I had to do was ask the questions, and guess what? Didn't ask questions. And so now I'm, I have to spin my wheels 14 years later to try to find the answers. Now, I think that Casey at one time may have been named as a suspect, quote unquote, but they cleared him pretty quickly. Now, Casey did tell me that they did interview interrogate him hard. I mean, he literally um, said that they just came at him. I mean, and they were very combative. 
telling him he knew it. He knew they knew he had something to do with it. He knew something. So, um, but anyway, it would be nice if you know they should have some suspects. We'll be right back. Love a good fright? Start streaming and screaming with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and critically acclaimed exclusives, discover what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series cover the entire horror spectrum, meaning there's something for every type of fan. Come experience highly anticipated new releases like Superhost, Seance starring Suki Waterhouse, and the Boulay Brothers' Dracula. Plus, don't miss out on Creepshow, Slasher, Flesh and Blood, and other must-see Shudder exclusives you won't find anywhere else. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder, so good it's scary. This episode is sponsored by Maidenhome. High-quality, handcrafted furniture for the modern home. Maiden Home brings you thoughtfully designed custom furniture, handcrafted in North Carolina. This region is home to some of the world's most talented artisans who are experts in woodworking, upholstery, and finishing. By partnering directly with these family-owned workrooms, Maiden Home gives you access to the world's finest craftsmanship without the retail markup. From sofas and sectionals to tables and beds, you'll find beautiful heirloom-quality pieces that will last for years. And with over 60 fabrics and leathers and a variety of wood finishes to choose from, you can create a piece custom to your design style. Enjoy complimentary white glove delivery on all orders, a lifetime warranty, and easy returns within 30 days. To browse the latest collection and order free swatches, visit MadeInHome.com. That's M-A-I-D-E-N-H-O-M-E.com to start building your custom piece today. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a soap opera star. Gracious me, my car has storm damage and I've had to file a claim. Could it possibly get worse? Will my claims team leave me for someone else? Someone less intense? Um, no. Actually, when you file a claim with GEICO, you get your own dedicated claims team who promises to stay with you throughout the process. Oh, I've never known such loyalty. I can't wait for the second season. Geico, great service without all the drama. Until we can find someone else who knew Casey, Danielle will have to help us understand Casey and Rebecca's relationship, which seems more and more complicated the more we learn. Um, they, I think, went out for over a year. I mean, he was obsessed with her. He wrote music about her, poems. You know, every now and then he would freak out. He was very, he's kind of controlling. Um, and on our way back to um, Mountain View, um, in the car, Rebecca had said, um, we had somehow, she had mentioned Casey, and she was like, hey, he wants to be my boyfriend. And, you know, she didn't want that. So that was really strange that she'd said that. After all the years and just not getting anywhere, I don't know Yeah. what to think. Yeah. And you were saying his dad wouldn't let you search the land? 
or he wouldn't let you we search We weren't allowed land. to search the land, no. Which seems really weird. Right. Right, because... That's where it happened. Yeah. <laughs> and they're really good, he's supposedly really good friends with her and loved her, so... Right. Why wouldn't he let you search? Right. We've heard that Casey's dad supposedly did not allow the land surrounding the crime scene to be searched. Was there no search warrant? And how much land are we talking here? Yeah, I feel like we got a lot to do, so... I need the address for the Isar County Assessor because I have no... Isar County Assessor, let's see. So we drive to Melbourne to get the tax records to find out. We're trying to find out, um, and we might need to go to the clerk's office, but if we're trying to find out who owns a piece of land, where's it at? Well, that's the thing. <laughs> we have the address. I have, I have it on my laptop. And there, we, there have been two different addresses for it, so. Can you do it by coordinates? Let me just see it. You know what? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, yeah. Okay. So it would be like this area right here. Can you zoom in? Does it have a house on it? Yes. So there should be an address there. Okay, so where from this is the property that you're looking for? It's sort of behind it. So the house is behind it? The house is right by the road, and then it's like there's some land behind it. Okay, so it's just the raw land that you're asking about. Yes. Um, it's who owns it. That's who owns the piece of, that's who owns the mobile too. How far does his property, how far does that property line go? Um, he's got quite a bit of property there. Wow, that's a lot. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very You're much. Welcome. Back at the car, we unroll the map from the assessor. So this is the house, this is the trailer house, right? Uh-huh. So look, where's, where's Highway 9? Anyway, just for my own interest, I'm like glad we saw that. Because he has a big ass piece of land back there. I'm just curious to see if there was a quicker way for Casey to cut through or anyone else to cut through. Um, it's only about four and a half miles in that cut through, and it's a really well-paved road. I found another back road. There's a dirt road that starts out right next to Sonic in Melbourne and comes out on Highway 58, just under a mile from Casey's house. I drive slowly down the dirt road, past several farms, and over a rickety wooden bridge. It's about four and a half miles from the Sonic to Casey's house, about 10 minutes, and I didn't pass one single car on the road. I kind of can't let go of the fact that Casey could have left work that day. And um, again, since we're trying to rule him out as a suspect, I just want to explore every possibility for how he could have gone between those two locations. One of the questions we've been trying to answer was whether Rebecca's body was taken straight to the dump site or kept somewhere else and moved. So we take another look at the autopsy. Reading through the gory details of the kinds of insects that consumed Rebecca's body makes me feel, in a strange way, like I'm invading her privacy. But it's one of the only pieces of solid physical evidence that we have access to in this case. So we owe it to Rebecca to leave no stone unturned, even if the details are stomach-churning. This is Dr. Eric Merritt. He's a forensic entomologist. Most of the time, and I'd say 99% of the time, it's a group called the blowflies. And these are the green and blue bottle flies that hang around your garbage can um, if there's rotting meat. These are the first flies to come to a body, whether it be a deer or a rabbit or anything that dies. If you put it out, say, in the, in the backyard, the first thing that come to them within minutes will be blowflies. So... What happens is, is, as soon as a person dies, they um, 
they give off odors, okay? And generally, they come into the ears, no eyes, nose, and mouth. That's their first area they come to and lay their eggs. So within 10 to 15 minutes after someone dies, and they'll come in and they'll lay their eggs within 12 to 24 hours of a dead body. And once they lay their eggs in, these maggots, what we call the eggs, hatch into maggots, and, or larvae we call them. And these things hatch from the eggs after 24 to 48 hours. And they go through a number of what we call stages or instars. The instar is a scientific term, but they hatch and they molt and they'll be a bigger larva and then they'll molt and they'll be a bigger larva. Mm -hmm. And so they grow at a constant rate based on temperature. It was Arkansas Indian summer during the week Rebecca's body was in the woods. The temperature climbed to highs of around 85 degrees. So what we do is when a person's found, like this body, I read your report, where she had magus one sixteenth to one, one half inch. So the one half inch would indicate that there's probably some late stage larvae that are ready to migrate away from the body and go into the soil and turn into a, what we call the resting stage or the pupa. And then eventually they'll come out as an adult. These are probably third instars. They go through three instars, first, second, and third. And there's certain characteristics of the larva we can look at and determine what stage they're in. When, when I saw that half, uh, half inch, that's about, oh, uh, 14, 12 to 14 millimeters. And that's about a third stage larvae. So it's, and based on the normal development of a fly that I'm used to, that would be about a week old. Dr. Merritt explains that while it's not an exact science, Forensic entomology can be one of the best ways to determine time of death. I've heard, like, for example, someone talking about this case, they said, oh, well, based on the maggots, they can get the time of death down to, like, 30 minutes. And I didn't, I, from everything I know, that's not true. If you can get the death down to within 30 minutes based on maggots, then you should be a suspect. But you can get better than anybody else, generally, by the medical examiner or by the um, the detectives and stuff like that, and even the anthropologists, you can do better than they can. So, it's if you have the maggots and you collect them and, and you know we can identify them, and we can do pretty darn close to when that person probably died, but not 30 minutes or anything like that. Based on my drive through the back roads, I estimate that someone could have killed Rebecca and disposed of her body in under an hour. All of the evidence points to the fact that she was in the woods for a week and that her body was put there within a few hours after her death, not kept somewhere else. We'll be right back. Fifteen minutes could save you 15% or more. Is that Shakespeare? Nope, it's Geico. Uh, yeah, 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 that's Shakespeare from one of his unpublished works. Oh, it be not for awakening. Nay, giveth thou the berries. For fifteen minutes could save you fifteen percent or more. No, it's from Geico, because they help save people money. Well, I hate to break it to you, but Geico got it from Shakespeare. Geico. Fifteen minutes could save you fifteen percent or more.
Good afternoon. Would you like to try a free sample of our double fudge brownie? Oh, sure. Mmm, that's very good. I- I'll just take one more, just to be sure. Yep, still very good. Some things never change, like never being able to take just one free sample. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Mmm, it- is that macadamia nut I taste? Let me take one more. Sir, mm. yeah. I thought so. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Geico knows there are many reasons why you ride. From the exciting adventure of the daily commute to the peace of mind that Geico always has your back with 24-7 access to claim service and legendary customer service. But Pamela Mund had one reason in particular. My skin is extremely averse to most fabrics, except for the soft, buttery feeling of leather. Thankfully, I found my clan of leather lovers in the biking community. It's been life-changing. Geico Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. During our investigation, we've learned a lot about Jennifer, Chris, JB, and Justin. But more than anyone else in this case, Casey is an enigma. By all accounts, he was distraught after Rebecca's death. He's the polar opposite of Justin, JB, and Chris, who come across as tough. Casey is the acoustic guitar strumming sensitive musician who wrote poems to his girlfriend. For several years after Rebecca's death, he traveled around the country working various jobs. A few years ago, he moved back to Melbourne. His new wife is attractive, young, and blonde, just like Rebecca. She worked at Sonic, too. They got married. They had children. At least on the surface, Casey seemed to find love and live happily ever after, the happy ending that Rebecca never got. But what I can understand is... When everyone else in town was searching for the girl he was madly in love with, Casey seemed to be MIA. Casey is the only person we've looked at so far who didn't help with the search. I tracked down Casey's friend Patrick at the store where he works. He's friendly and welcoming. When I tell him I'm there to talk about Casey and Rebecca's murder, he takes me into the back office. Casey's one of my best friends. (laughs) Yes, yeah, Casey... uh... After the whole ordeal and everything, of course, you know, he was still staying out there with the trailer, which he hated. Um, he, uh, I ended up talking to him, and he, we let him move, actually move in with me and my wife, and he stayed with us for, I don't even know how long, a long time. I mean, I still remember that entire day. Uh, I was actually in town getting, uh, we had one of our uh, lug nut bolts on our tire break off. We had to get it fixed uh, when we heard about it and everything. But I remember right after that, all that happened and everything else, uh, I heard about it. I remember Casey and them saying that uh, he had spent the night with Laren and them because uh, we were going. We used to have a huge group of Sonic people. Every Wednesday, we'd go out to Laren's and have this Halo night where we'd bring TVs and Xboxes to play. Uh, but after I heard about it and everything else, uh, of course, Casey was distraught. And uh, while he was, I guess, being interviewed and everything else, I went around town to the different gas stations and stuff, asking, saying, hey, do you have any cameras pointing towards the road, trying to verify his story? Everything and I guess uh, the possum trot, or it used to be possum trot, uh, had some cameras out there, and which we informed the police about. And then I guess that's one of the cameras they found. When you guys, when when he went to Laren's, do you know what he was doing that night? That I don't. That I don't. Um, uh, so back then, uh, which I don't know if it's changed now, as far as like with Laren and them, we've all they've all that whole house split, of course. 
Um, but back then, you know, they were big into marijuana and stuff like that, smoking marijuana, and that was their big thing. So I imagine if they got together, that's probably what they were doing that night. Um, which I guess they probably were because I guess whenever Casey did the lie detector test and stuff like that, I guess there was some issues. If you smoke marijuana so far before you take one, they say you can mess up the tests or something. I called a polygraph examiner and asked if marijuana can make you fail a lie detector test. He said, without a doubt, marijuana cannot make you pass or fail. What was their relationship like, his and Rebecca's? As far as I know, good. I mean, I do know they had um, some issues as far as, like, you know, staying together, because I guess there were some other guys that was in a relationship before Casey, and, you know, so there would be breaks up, breakups, and stuff like that, to where she would go back with one of them. But uh, as far as I know, there at the end, they were doing great. He, he was pretty distraught about it. I mean, like I said, for a long time, when he lived with us, he was, he was scared to even be at the house by himself, you know, because he didn't know what or who uh, happened to her, of course. You know, of course, we all had our suspicions about some certain individuals out in Mountain View and everything. Uh, but like I said, he did, of course, you know, like, what if they come after me, you know, what if they're after me, things like that. So he was always paranoid. I remember the first couple of nights and stuff, or the first couple of weeks that he actually stayed with us, he wouldn't go in the trailer. If we were gone, like, come base with something, we come back, I would go into the, the trailer, check everything, make sure, you know, no one's hiding out of there. What happened to the trailer ever? Did it? Is it still there? Mm-hmm. But he lives in it now. Oh, he's uh, back in it. He didn't live there for, like I said, a couple of years at least. His dad still lived there. Then I guess his grandpa uh, ended up uh, going into like some type of nursing home or something. So his dad moved out of the trailer, moved in with, uh, moved into his grandpa's old place. Just to clarify, Casey is living in the house that his girlfriend was murdered in. Well then, Casey, I believe at the time, was actually, there's a, a cabin on the same property as down. Off. He was staying living down there for a little while, and uh, he ended up meeting his wife that he's with now, uh, Hannah. And then uh, after they started getting married and they found out they were going to have a kid, they moved into the trailer, and that's where they've been living ever since. What's sort of Casey's theory or your theory about who did it? So... I'm not real good with names. Um, I don't remember names. It's hard, <laughs> hard for me to remember them. But um, of course, there was one of my old bosses. Uh, oh, what was her name? Female. Jennifer. Yes, yes, Jennifer. And there was one other, but I didn't know that individual. I guess it was, from what I understand, was her dealer at the time. Sounds like Patrick is just regurgitating all the rumors. So what is Casey's theory? You know, I think about it, especially whenever I see stuff on Facebook about it and stuff like that. Um, I remember about a year ago, maybe a year and a half, two years ago. It don't seem like it was that long. I saw the thing um, pop up on Facebook where they talked about how they had a lot more leads about they heard some uh, college students and stuff over at Ozark College talking and stuff, talking about them committing the, the crime and everything. So I was hoping, I was like, okay, well, great. You know, it's too. finally gonna get. I was too. I was really, you know, but. And then it just died off, nothing. Yeah, I'd heard, and well, everyone's related, and everyone, it's just a tough, it's difficult to untangle. I've never once thought Casey. Right. Never once. Um, just because I've been friends with him so long. Um, but. Almost seemed like the person had been at the house before because they knew where everything was at, cleaning supplies, you know, things like that, using the washer. It just seems odd to me that someone would feel comfortable enough to stay there at the house and that much time. Thank you very much. Yeah. Here's my number. And, um, yeah, if you'll think of anything, I'll really Yes, ma'am. I agree. I, I'm glad to hear that somebody's actually looking into yeah, it. Yeah, I'm on, um, I'll connect with you on Facebook. I'm on Facebook, too, and we do, like, updates and stuff. And sure. Yeah, yeah. I met Casey, um, 
when he was with Rebecca, I, w I think we were at uh, Tiffany's graduation in Fayetteville, and uh, all my kids were there, and Casey came with Rebecca. Uh, and so I met him there. Other than that, I don't think I had met him What did you think of before. Him? I don't remember because it just, was just, yeah, you know, like, yeah, it was, I was involved with Tiffany and, but there were photographs and I just don't, re I don't remember having an impression of them. Rebecca's father didn't know Casey very well. They only met once. I mean, and did you see him at all that week? No, not, not that I recall. But you have to remember that I, I didn't know some of these people. I, I, I would be introduced to some people, and then I could place them. But there, was, there, were, there were so many people out there that were helping that I was introduced to. And then, of course, we were, you know, you're just, you have tunnel vision. You're just not looking at, hey, this person over here could be the killer. I'm pretty sure that Justin was there. Um, and, and I think Justin was there with his new girlfriend who was pregnant. Um, and I believe I got introduced to her. Um, and aside from that, we just went off looking and searching. So nothing, nothing made any sense. But then, then everything's gray. Uh, I, I don't know, you know, I know Casey got back in the trailer and things were unlocked. Um, I, I did, uh, it was left in a, in a state where somebody could come in and out. But, uh, but if these other state police guys came, they would have known enough to, to you know, kind of set up a, a perimeter around it or something where people couldn't be there. But, and why they didn't, I don't know. Uh, it could be that it was because uh, the jurisdiction is set up initially that it's the sheriff's department. And then at some point, it gets turned over to the state police at the request of the sheriff's department. And that, how much time went by until that happened could have been days. According to multiple sources, Casey walked in and out of the crime scene. Former Izzard County Sheriff Joe Martz talked to A.K. Barnes in 2016 about the crime scene. He was open about the fact that the local sheriff's office was overwhelmed. He said that investigators spent 13 hours inside the house bagging evidence, so many that he had to go to Miller's grocery store to get more paper bags and boxes to send to the state crime lab. He said that they took hundreds of items from the trailer and turned the case over to the Arkansas State Police. Larry has also heard the rumors that Casey went home at some point before returning to the crime scene on Tuesday with the police. I wonder where this rumor originated. I'm pretty sure Danielle told me her mom called the police. I'll have to look back at everything to make sure. But, but also there was a note that her mom had gotten a call from Casey that was alarming about the stuff being in the house. But she wasn't. Her stuff was there, but she wasn't. So I guess I'm just wondering, was that while the police were there? Or could that have been? If that was before the police got there, then that means that he went home before the police got there. And that would conflict with the story he told the police, where he yeah, said he was I heard there. the two stories, that he, that he went home and actually went into the trailer before anybody knew anything. Um, and I, I don't know, if you can't talk to him, you can't pin it down now. He told, he, he did, he called either Danielle or her mother and He also told said, a couple people at Sonic. Yeah. So that's what we're, working on now, because as soon as we can get someone saying, as soon as we have someone nailing down saying that he said that, I mean, that totally, that, 
The reason, he, in my opinion, he was written off as a suspect so early is because um, of the alibi. He supposedly had this alibi and he was gone the whole night and he, multiple witnesses and all this. So if we can show that he, there's a hole in that, then, I mean, there's something weird about his story. There's something No matter weird. what, yeah, there's something wrong with his story, so. Yeah, and even the various descriptions of what the trailer was like. Um, I have something in writing that one of the officers that came in later said the thing was just, what was his expression? Uh, not disheveled, it was, uh, uh, can't think of the term, but it was a mess. And then you have others that said, that said well, you, I didn't notice anything. So um, I can't believe that Casey would have, could have gone there um, and have Rebecca's car there, purse there. Obviously some other things were there that we know now um, and he didn't know that something was wrong. Um, and then all the other things that you know about, you know, just doesn't make any sense. Casey shut down. Uh, and, and Casey, to me, still um, has to be one of the primary suspects. And the fact that he won't come forward and spend time uh, really talking to people and going through things and and, you know, showing his innocence and answering questions. A lot of the answers that I've seen in written form, answers that I've seen in, in just responses he's given other people conflict. According to Larry, the events after Rebecca went missing are a blur. Remember, George Jarrett described him taping up Rebecca's missing poster over road signs on the highway. It's obvious that he was devastated by Rebecca's death. Both Patrick and George mention the fact that Casey was distraught after Rebecca's murder. And we know that trauma can make people behave irrationally. But we now know that Justin, Jennifer, Chris, and JB were all around. All of them searched for Rebecca. All of them, except Casey. Now it's just becoming a glowing red flag. Every single person Chris and these guys have so much to lose if they say the wrong thing, and they're still cooperating, right? All these guys. The one that's not is Casey. We did get to one of Casey's friends, but I really think it's the Sonic people who hold the key to if or when or how Casey may have gone home on Monday. Nobody seems to know shit about Casey, who's in this friend group, by the way. They didn't even really know Rebecca was dating him. And they're, he's like, I didn't know that guy. I think I met him once. Like, And Chris is like, you know... I didn't know where that cat, I didn't even know where that place was. I'd never been there, told the police I'd never been there. And that's like a bold statement. He's like, take my DNA because I've never been there. None of these people went to that cabin. Not only that, but they just don't look like people that would mesh at all. Because we were kind of talking about it. Casey's like, he's in a band. He's kind of, he was a little bit more. He was a hipstery, yeah. hipstery dude, you know, like smoke pot, went to Laren's house to smoke pot, like. Playing a band, like you said. Yeah, pot was the drug of choice rather than meth. And like, you know what I Sometimes. mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure, well, yeah. Casey definitely, they, yeah, they just didn't mix. They just didn't. They were in different cities, different groups of people. This whole rumor that they were all partying at that house just never happened. That never happened. As far as I know, Casey's not even real. Right. <laughs> yeah, he could just be a, a fake Facebook account. You know, like, you're right. There's, there's literally, it's like a ghost town. Then all of a sudden, our ghost appears. Casey sends me a Facebook message. He tells me he doesn't want to talk and that he has a family he needs to protect. He declines to speak with me 
and makes it clear that the only people he will speak with moving forward are the police. It looks like if we're going to find out more about Casey, it's not going to be from him. Oh, yeah. No, listen, it would because um, we've heard, obviously, like we've heard some of these names, I'm sure, and some rumors. But if if the person who actually heard people talking about it is, yeah, that that's really valuable. And I mean... No, listen, I really, really appreciate it. I mean, I wonder, I mean, did, did Casey have any theories about who did it over the years? Yeah, because that's been, a, that has actually been um, one of the things that struck us about it, that the, you know, that, that place is so remote, you know what I mean? It's like, who would know, who'd be able to know that it was there? That's been kind of a, from the beginning, you know. All right, thank you so much. All right, thanks. Bye. Okay, that was extremely interesting. This is Casey's best friend. Interesting for reasons other than, you know, it's not like, oh, he thinks he did it. No, it's, uh, this is his best friend. He basically lived in that house at the time. Um, lived in that trailer. You know, he was there all the time. I was very, I wanted to ask him way more questions, but he was kind of like, kind of had to go. And anyway... Basically, he works around town. He has a co-worker who he said, this guy said he heard the other day about the case getting reopened. So that's obviously through our stuff. And he was talking about it with a co-worker. And the co-worker sort of said that he heard at a party that it was a group of people who did it and was given details and things. And But interestingly, he was out of town for like three days um, during the murder. He was working on a tugboat, I think he said. But when he got back, he said Casey was staying with his sister. And he also said that uh, Casey cried in his arms about it and, you know, was just all upset, right? But he said, you know, really, it really got to me. That cabin's so remote. Nobody knows where the hell that place is. You know, he was literally saying that. And he goes, I straight out asked him, did you do it? He said, friend of friend, did you do it? And then he kind of went off and he goes, of course, he was at work, so blah, blah. He just kind of went off. But I'm thinking, like, like you can feel the wheels turning. He said they were still really close, but, like, because Casey had a girlfriend. See, and everyone in Casey's life refers to Rebecca as the girlfriend. But everyone in Rebecca's life refers to Casey just like some random guy who's, like, around. And he's like, well, no. He's like, he, it was just really painful and... I'm sorry, if your girlfriend got fucking murdered in your house, you're gonna solve it. You're gonna you're gonna be like us times 100 on steroids. You're gonna be like, I'm gonna solve this. I'm gonna find out who did this in my house. Who came into my house and killed my girlfriend? You're not gonna be fired up. I mean, I get you go through a period of grief, but after a while, you notice everyone else we've spoken to, Chris, JB, everyone has theories or at least an idea of what, or even if, or if they don't know, they sit there and, and say, you know, I've thought about it for countless hours, it's haunted me. And yet, this is the this is Casey's best friend saying, well, no, I kind of waited for him to bring it up. No, he didn't really have any theory. You're gonna tell me, I mean, if it were me and it was my boyfriend, I would have a murder board in my house and I would probably like, I'd be like the guy in The Vanishing, you know, who like took a hotel room and put red strings everywhere. I do think that there are people who feature in this tale who may have at one point 
bragged about it or may have known people because just because they were either because they're trying to look hard and tough I could even see Jennifer, even though, she, even if she had nothing to do with it, it, she's got this hard bitch image. Do you know what I mean? So it, I can see her playing. I, I don't, I don't see a downside to kind of. I, I see why. I see why that would happen. I'm not saying it did, but I'm just saying I. When he told me, he asked his friend, and then he on his own brought up the remoteness of that location. Of course, he was at work. Is not really what you want to hear. You want to hear. There's no way my friend could have done that. You know, he doesn't have it, and he never would have hurt anybody. Not while he was at work. Oh, Catherine. Here's the other thing that really bothers me about this whole investigation has since the start. In part of your victimology profile, you're supposed to interview the people closest to the victim. And I don't know if the police talked to Danielle or, and by the way, she's a trauma victim. So like at the time it should have been done in a way like a very sensitive, you know, you've got to be really careful with trauma victims. And, and you know, this is the person that knew her best, okay? And I'm just not sure that they ever I don't think they ever got anything about the temper or, you know, any of these things about Casey. I, I just, I don't even know if they ever, I don't know if they questioned her, I don't, I don't know. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Hell and Gone. is a joint production between How Stuff Works and School of Humans. It is written and recorded by me, Katherine Townsend. Taylor Church is our producer and story editor. Audio editing and design by Jonathan Sleep. Mix engineer, Glenn Matulo. Audio mixing and love by Tune Welders. Executive producers, Brandon Barr and L.C. Crowley for School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Chuck Bryant for How Stuff Works. Our field producer is James Morrison. Our researcher is Sandy Klosterman. Theme and original score by Ben Soli. Available wherever you get your music. To dig into the investigation, please visit HelenGonePodcast.com or follow us on social media. Support for this podcast is from Williams. We make clean energy happen. Williams is the first North American midstream company to establish a climate commitment and an immediate approach to a sustainable future. We've released our 2020 sustainability report to track progress on our ESG goals, which includes a near-term emissions reduction target of 56% by 2030. We're leveraging our natural gas-focused strategy to fight climate change today and build a clean energy economy tomorrow. Our infrastructure and commitment are transforming the future of energy. Learn more at williams.com. How do airplanes fly? What's in this box? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Learn how to store your gun securely and make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. The Real-Time Crime Podcast is for true fans of true crime. Join Leah Lamar and Teddy Mellencamp for an iHeartRadio original podcast dedicated to armchair detectives. Embark on a quest to unravel unsolved mysteries and delve into current criminal trials in real time. Why do I obsess over true crime? It's because I need to know every detail because they say that the devil's in the details. Listen to Real-Time Crime on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.